Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. In 1155 BC, the news came north from Egypt. After 31 glorious years of rule, the beloved of Amun, ruler of Heliopolis, and vanquisher of the Sea Peoples, the great pharaoh Ramesses III, was dead. Which would have been momentous enough. But as it happened, he didn't just die of old age, but as victim of a palace conspiracy. One of his minor royal wives had plotted to have Ramesses killed and elevate her son to king of Egypt. The plot was discovered and the conspirators arrested, but not before they grievously injured the pharaoh. While presiding over the trial of the perpetrators, Ramesses III had finally expired, to be succeeded by his oldest surviving son, Ramesses IV. And please hold on tight for this next bit. On Ramesses IV's death, six years later, he was succeeded by his son, Ramesses V. On his death, only four years later, he was succeeded by another of Ramesses III's sons, who took power as Ramesses VI, who was succeeded eight years later by his son, Ramesses VII who was followed seven years later by another son of Ramesses III, who took power as Ramesses VIII. After he died the following year, he was succeeded by a grandson of Ramesses III, who took power as Ramesses IX. And in case you're appalled by this short synopsis, and you really should be, please check out the History of Egypt podcast because Dominic will be giving all these figures the in-depth treatment they deserve. For the purposes of our story, none of these pharaohs showed the slightest interest in reconquering southern Syria, which meant that the great king Kuzi Teshub of Carchemish was free to focus on rebuilding and strengthening his kingdom. As historian Trevor Bryce notes, his actions likely included reconstructing cities and roads and resettling populations in their home territories or other depopulated regions.
His resources weren't infinite, and many Syrian cities and regions had remained abandoned for the better part of a century. But at least his efforts provided some structure and a base for others to build on. We don't have many contemporary records, but there is one stele dating from the period that shines a crack of light. Bryce notes a hieroglyphic inscription which was carved on a stele discovered at Kara Hoyuk. The site lay west of the city of Malatya, which was located along the upper Euphrates. And, according to one expert, the inscription reflects the epigraphic style of Tarhuntasa rather than Karkemish. The stele was set up by a man called Armanani to mark the occasion of a visit by a great king called Ir Teshub. The inscription records how the great king set about repopulating and redeveloping the land after finding its main city in a derelict state, and handed over to Armanani control of three other cities within it. Now, the only great king on the block was Kuzi Teshub, and though he dispatched his son Pugnus Mili to rule Malatya, he used a lesser title, which suggests that the great king on the stele, Ir Teshub, may have been the ruler of Tarhuntasa, a successor of Hartapu and Uri Teshub, or alternately, he might have been a descendant of Supalulioma II still ruling the region of Gurgum. Or, to be honest, he could have just been some random relative or Hittite official taking advantage of the chaos in Anatolia. East of the Euphrates, the former territories of Mitanni, reconquered by Tukulti Ninurta, had stumbled free of Assyrian control in the decades after his death. How did he die? Well, let's do a little catch-up. After victorious campaigns against the Hittites, Kassites, and Elamites, Tukulti Ninurta adopted the titles of King of Assyria, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Four Corners of the World, and King of All Peoples. He also took up the fun new hobby of writing epic poetry. But all was not rosy in the House of Assur. While campaigning in the south, he'd plundered the ancient temples of Babylon, one of the region's absolute no-nos, which not only made him unpopular with his people, but also with the Assur priesthood. So, Tukulti Ninurta did what any of us would do. He used a chunk of his temple plunder to build a brand new man cave. Sorry, I mean royal capital which he modestly named the Fortress of Tukulti Ninurta. So, let the priests and people complain. Tukulti Ninurta had Bo's surround sound and some epic poetry to write. In retrospect, he probably should have spent a bit more time on honing his parenting skills. Because before too long, both of his sons had rebelled against him, besieged him in his personal fortress, and eventually had him murdered. And that was the end of that. Together with his predecessors, Adad-Nirari and Shalmaneser, Tukulti Ninurta had elevated Assyria to a major regional power. But most of those territorial gains would be lost to a series of weak successors. 
between 1196 and 1114 BC, while Talmi Teshub, then Kuzi Teshub, ruled in Carchemish, Assyria had at least eight kings. One of Tekulti Ninurta's sons, Enlil Kaduri Usur, apparently fared so poorly in battle that his own troops turned him over to the Kassites for punishment. After this debacle, a court official named Ninurta Apple Eker, who'd governed former Mitanni lands, usurped the Assyrian throne, which is mainly notable since his descendants would continue to rule Assyria for the next 400 years. Do you guys remember Asher Resh Ishi? Well, he really wishes you would. His royal titles included Merciless Hero in Battle, Crusher of the Enemies of Assur, Strong Shackle Binding the Insubmissive, and One Who Puts the Insubordinate to Flight. He also called himself the Avenger of Assyria, though it's hard to say if he was more Hawkeye or Tony Stark. His early campaigns were mainly directed against the tribes of the Zagros Mountains, and he also tangled fairly successfully with the latest Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar I. Later inscriptions credit Asher Resh-Ishi with restoring the walls of Assur. In his capital of Nineveh, he also rebuilt the tower gates of the Temple of Ishtar and embellished them with statues of lions. While all these accomplishments were points of pride, Asher Resh-Ishi is mainly remembered, when he's remembered at all, for two other things. The first is the nature of his western campaigns, and the second is his famous son. With regard to the former, the king campaigned against what are described as hordes of migrating Alamu tribesmen. These Alamu are actually an early appearance of a people who'd strongly impact the region, and whose language would come to dominate the Near East for over a thousand years. I'm talking about the Aramaeans. Like the earlier Amorites, the Aramaeans of the 12th century BC were mainly nomadic pastoralists. According to Bryce, in the same rough time frame as the Bronze Age collapse, they immigrated into Syria, northern Mesopotamia, and eastern Anatolia from the fringes of the Syrian desert. There was likely a push as well as a pull, the former being an increasingly challenging climate, while the latter was the large-scale depopulation of former Mitanni territories. Earlier kings including Shalmaneser and Tikulti Ninurta, had had brief encounters with Alamu tribesmen. But by the reign of Ashur Resh-Ishi, the migrations had grown sufficiently large to be viewed as a regional threat. His campaigns against them were recorded as victories, and by a strict definition, they probably were. But in a larger sense, he was basically fighting the tide. As I hinted at earlier, the second legacy of Asher Resh-Ishi was fathering a famous son, who succeeded him to the Assyrian throne in 1114 BC. His name was Tekulti Apil Ashara, which translates to, My trust is in the son of Ashara, with Ashara identical to Asher. Which, to me, begs the question, who's the son of Ashur? which is actually kind of a fun digression. 
Okay, so back in the time of King Hammurabi, the Babylonians had replaced the Sumerian god Enlil with their own city god Marduk at the head of the local pantheon. Around the same time, the Assyrians up north had replaced Enlil with their own city god Ashur. In each case, the new chief gods also quote-unquote adopted Enlil's family. Enlil's sons were the war gods Ninurta of Girsu and Zababa of Kish. So the son of Ashur was likely one of these two war gods. If it's Ninurta, then Tekulti Apel Ashara, my trust is in the son of Ashur, is identical to Tekulti Ninurta. See, wasn't that fun? A later Assyrian king of the same name interacted with the Hebrews of Israel and Judah, who approximated the name Tekulti Apel Ashara as Tiglath Pileser. So, long story long, the figure we're talking about is the Assyrian king Tiglath Pileser I. At around the same time as Tiglath Pileser ascended the throne, the great king Kuzi Teshub of Carchemish died. As far as we know, he had two sons. The eldest, Pugnus Mili, had been sent up north to rule Malacha, but he'd also apparently predeceased his father. So Kuzi Teshub was succeeded in Carchemish by his younger son, the new great king, Eni Teshub. In the wake of Pugnus Mili's death, Malacha was ruled by one of his sons. He apparently had three. Runtaya, Arnuwanti, and Alumari, each of whom may have ruled in Ceres. The traditional title of Malach's rulers was the relatively humble country lord, though Arnuwanti also called himself king and hero. And what about Tiglath Pileser I? Well, in addition to king of Assyria, he decided to go with unrivaled king of the universe king of the four quarters, king of all princes, and lord of lords, whose weapons the god Assur has sharpened. He also tacked on my personal favorite, Splendid Flame, which covers the hostile land like a rainstorm. To the new great king Eni Teshub, this all may have been bluster or may have been true, but either way it was no clear cause for concern. The more conspicuous threat was a powerful tribal confederation called the Mushki. Though their origins are a bit unclear, they likely hailed from somewhere in eastern Anatolia or the adjacent Armenian highlands. They'd also recently captured and settled the territories of Alza and Perukus, just north of the city of Malacha. It's unknown how Initeshub kept the tribes at bay. My personal guess is a decent army and a liberal use of bribes. Whatever the reason, when the Mushki finally marched to war, it wasn't south along the Euphrates, but instead along the Tigris, where they conquered the Assyrian border territory of Kamuka. This may have been a stepping stone on the way to richer lands down south. But all the Mushki'd really done was kick the Assyrian hornet's nest. I'll let Tiglath-Pileser take up the story. 
In the beginning of my reign, 20,000 Muscayans betook themselves of their strength and went and seized the territory of Kamuka. In the service of Asher, my lord, the chariots and warriors I assembled before me. And with their 20,000 fighting men and their five kings, I engaged. Reports of the battle reaching Eni Teshub would have told of an Assyrian victory. Not only were warriors killed and kings taken hostage, but Tiglath-Pileser pursued their remnants up the Tigris and ravaged the Mushki homeland. Tiglath then swung by Kamukha, and, for the crime of withholding Assyrian tribute, he burned their cities to the ground. Only then, with his point firmly made, did he return to the capital of Nineveh. For Eni Teshub, it was kind of a mixed bag. The retaliatory raid on the Mushki homeland had come perilously close to Malachia. But, on a more positive note, Tiglath-Pileser had also rid Eni Teshub of a potential northern threat. Plus, the Assyrian campaign had been largely defensive, and it was hard to gauge the king's intentions based on a single conflict. That all changed the following year, when Tiglath-Pileser embarked on a second campaign. First, there was the fact that he was even doing yearly campaigns, which was worrisome all by itself. Second, this campaign wasn't so strictly defensive. As historian George Rue writes, Anxious to secure his northern frontier, Tiglath-Pileser went up to the top of the steep mountains of the land of Nairi, where he penetrated into Armenia and set up his image at Malazgird, far beyond Lake Van, where his predecessor, Tikulti-Ninurta, had defeated 40 Nairi kings, Tiglath fought between 20 and 30 which wasn't so much a sign of weakness as a sign of consolidation. In the end, Tiglath leveled the ranks of their warriors like grass, and many of their kings I subjected to my yoke. Initeshub may have been relieved, since Nairi lands were some distance east. Well, relieved until he learned about what happened next. Tiglath-Pileser continues that, in the course of this expedition, I went to the city of Malachia, which was independent and did not obey me. They abstained from engaging in the root fight with me. They submitted to my yoke, and I had mercy upon them. This city I did not occupy, but I imposed on them, as a token of their allegiance, a fixed tribute." So, without a blow being struck, the city of Malachia switched from being a vassal of Carchemish to a vassal of the Assyrian Empire. Initeshub couldn't really fault his nephew. Given the evident force disparity, the latest country lord, Alumari, made the only sensible choice. But the incident created a leadership rift between the two cities and from that point onward, Malachia would chart its own path. At the end of the campaign, Tiglath-Pileser returned to Assyria, which allowed Eni-Teshub to finally exhale, stroke his chin, and ponder the new situation. 
The last full-blown war with Assyria had taken place a century before, under the Hittite great king Tutaliah IV. And even that one had been an Assyrian victory. As the senior royal of northern Syria, Initeshub may have put out feelers. To the pharaoh of Egypt, the ruler of Gergam, a few of the Canaanite coastal cities, who knows, maybe even Dor and Philistia, to gauge the likelihood of some kind of mutual defense. At the same time, the immediate threat had receded into the distance. Following his campaigns against the Nairi, Tiglath-Pileser spent the next two years subduing and decimating the tribes of the Zagros Mountains. The victories he earned had the usual benefits— securing his borders, training his army, and gathering heaps of plunder. Given the groundwork being laid, Initeshub had to hope that Tiglath's intended target was the obvious one, King Nebuchadnezzar I of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had been friends with Tiglath's father, Ashuresh Ishi, but that friendship had been broken when Nebuchadnezzar attacked two Assyrian fortresses. Ashuresh Ishi defeated him twice, but Nebuchadnezzar remained in power and had recently plundered the Elamite capital of Susa. So, in Tiglath's eyes, he was a dynastic enemy who was also incredibly wealthy. There was just one thing that was nagging at the back of his mind. The greatest of the ancient kings, Sargon of Akkad and Naram-Sin were remembered for the broad scope of their territorial conquests. With Hattie and Egypt in disarray, the West was basically up for grabs, a situation that might not last forever. So Tiglath decided that before he marched toward the lower sea, maybe it was time to take a tour of the upper. In 1109 B.C., Initeshub got word that the Assyrian army was marching west. The exact route they took is unknown, but they may have followed the Tigris northwest to Malatia, then crossed the Euphrates and descended along the coast. According to Tiglath-Pileser's inscription, I marched to Mount Lebanon. I cut down and carried off cedar beams for the temple of the gods Anu and Adad. I continued to the land of Amuru and conquered the entire land. I received tribute from the lands of Byblos, Sidon, and Arwad. Now, the territory of Amuru was still a wasteland, as were the nearby lands of Ugarit, Hamath, and Alalak. But Byblos, Sidon, and Arwad were a different story. These three, along with Beirut and Tyre, were a string of Canaanite coastal cities that had somehow been left untouched by the Bronze Age collapse. Or, to be more precise, they'd been touched in a positive way. With Ugarit and Alalak totally destroyed, these cities had become the leading commercial powers in coastal Syria, which meant they were extremely rich and only moderately defended the proverbial easy pickings. And no matter how hard he tried to stand perfectly still and remain totally, totally super quiet, 
it was eventually time for Eni Teshub to face the Assyrian music. Tiglath Pileser got right to the point. Finally, upon my return, I became lord of the entire land of Hadi, and imposed upon Eni Teshub, king of the land of Hadi, hostages, tax, and tribute. Similar to Malachia, he neither killed the king nor installed an Assyrian garrison. As Bryce notes, perhaps the most surprising part of the whole affair is that, as far as we can judge from the sources, Tiglath-Pileser's operations in Syria and Palestine were bloodless ones. He gives no indication that he resorted at any time to military action. The mere show of force in the region was apparently sufficient to win the submission of the lands and cities which he approached. In short, the Western Campaign was essentially a revenue-gathering exercise. Like his predecessors, Tiglath-Pileser devoted much of his tribute to renovating palaces and temples. His personal guardian deity was Vul, the Babylonian god of canals and tempests, and he frequently dedicated iron vessels to Vul while on campaign. Once he returned to Nineveh, Tiglath laid the lower foundations of the temple of Anu and Vul. I made bricks, I leveled the earth, I took its dimensions. From its foundations to its roofs, I built it up better than it was before. He also records that inside of it, I sacrificed precious victims to my lord Vul. On a slightly more positive note, Tiglath's reign also witnessed the revival of Assyrian writing. The king began the regular inscription of royal annals and summary texts preserving the details of each year's military campaigns. He also drafted a new legal code, one of the harshest ever recorded, and compiled an early library of cuneiform texts. But when everything was said and done, Tiglath's proudest boast remained that there fell into my hands altogether, between the commencement of my reign and my fifth year, a total of 42 countries. Back in Karkemish, Initeshub must have contemplated a pretty depressing future, one punctuated by Assyrian armies extorting his kingdom's wealth. If so, he was both right and wrong. That future would one day come to pass, but... Though he continued to rule for decades more, Tiglath-Pileser would never again come west across the Euphrates. And after his death, he'd be followed by a century of rulers, torn apart by civil war and pressed to the wall by the Aramaeans, many of whom could barely defend the vital Assyrian core. In fact, It'd be over two centuries before an Assyrian king would again return to the region. And it was during this time of Assyrian weakness that the land of Hadi would thrive.